Hello, wrestling fans. Welcome to another episode of Charting the Territories, the only podcast that takes statistics and pro wrestling and mashes them up together into something easily digestible. My name is Al Getz. With me, as always, is my co-host, John Boucher. John, happy July. We are recording this a few days after the 4th of July. Were there any fireworks going off in your neck of the woods? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because we're, 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 we're in Astoria here, you know, so right on the East River. So we get the 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 we can, we can hear and sort of see the 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 East River, some East River fireworks and some other just random some, you know, the outlaw fireworks. Yeah, a lot, a lot of the outlaw happen. mud show fireworks. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I so I, you know, I had scattered fireworks around the neighborhood. Nothing too bad. I thought that they might have been doing something up by the Brave Stadium at the Battery. The Braves are out of town, but I thought maybe they would still do something at the stadium when it wasn't being used. But that was not the case. So I was able to get to bed shortly, you know, after midnight without too much uh, banging noises to wake me up. That's nice. That's, yeah, they went late here. They went to like they were like three in the morning, three three thirty. They were still going on. I was like, what is what is happening? Well. Hopefully we will not keep you up till three in the morning this month on charting the territories. <laughs> We're actually going to go to the uh, middle of the United States of America. We're going to talk about Heart of America Sports Attractions, I, which I believe was the business name. I've also seen it Heart of America Promotions or Heart of America Sports Promotions. But it's the one that wrestling fans typically refer to as Central States Wrestling. Of course, you can see our full A Year in the Life of Heart of America in 1971 at chartingtheterritories.com. Really, some of the big things that happened in this territory in 1971 is uh, there is one main character. The top heel is the champion for most of the year, and he's got several baby faces nipping at his tail. Also, some interesting developments in the tag team scene that is different from what we see in a lot of other territories. Uh, we also, uh, due to my research at the Kansas State Archives, we actually have a wealth of attendance and gate figures. Uh, mm. And the attendance mm. figures, uh, and these are for shows held in the state of Kansas only, but I actually shared those records with WrestlingData.com. So if you go there and look up uh, 1971 Central States results, when we have attendance figures, they have them on Wrestling Data as well. Also on our website on A Year in the Life, we do have a discussion, uh, a big picture view of these attendance figures. But of course, later on in this podcast, we're going to discuss how to in assess these and interpret these. And in fact, there are a few occasions where we not only have the numbers that were filed with the commission, but we also have attendance numbers for the same show that were reported in the newspaper. And those numbers are drastically different. So we're going to talk about that. Also, my first two books uh, under the Charting the Territories banner are available at chartingtheterritories.com and also available worldwide at Amazon. And for the first time, people are going to be able to buy them in person from me. And this will be in Waterloo, Iowa at the 2023 George Tragos Luthez Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame Induction Weekend, July 20th through the 23rd. So later this month, I'll have books 
for sale all weekend at the Dan Gable Museum as part of the Hall of Fame induction weekend. And also at that event, I'm going to announce a little something about the next book coming up from Charting the Territories. <gasps> yeah, so there's going to be an announcement. So this this is an announcement about an announcement. <laughs> Like the teaser trailer that is going to announce when the trailer announcing the release date for, you know, Barbie is uh, is coming. Uh, of course, also on this podcast, all our regular features this month, I learned John plays Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia. And as always, we kick it off with stuff John bought me off eBay. So this month I received the item in the mail. Mm-hmm. And I opened it up and it's a wooden figure. Uh, so think of like a, think a wrestling action figure, but it's actually made of wood. And mm-hmm. at first I thought it was Dr. D. David Schultz, but I looked closer and the item was actually shipped originally from Argentina. And knowing that in the past, John has got me multiple items from Titanus and El Ring. It dawned on me that this was not Dr. D. David Schultz, but this is Martin Kardashian. Indeed. Indeed it is. Or it's supposed to be, yes. Well, it's 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 not a horrible resemblance. Uh, no, no. Uh, yeah. So, um, John, do we know, was this an official, uh, officially licensed? Because you've, you've got me the Domino set before, and that sure seemed yep. to be official. <laughs> the album uh, of, music, yep. of some of the entrance themes was official. Do we know if this was uh, an official figure or is it an outlaw mud show? Bootleg. This, I think, is an outlaw mud show bootleg. When I, 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 I've seen these in the actual packaging. I guess what do they? What are they? I'm not really into like the the, the wrestling the figure. Clam the, oh, well, clamshell blister pack, maybe blister pack. Yeah, there you go. It's not in that. I've seen those, uh, and it has you know the Titanas and all ring, the cool logo and the packaging and the whole nine yards. I've seen like the mummy and another guy, you know, um, this looks different. This looks almost like, like a voodoo doll meets an action figure. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know if there was, there was at any point there were, there were, there were pins stuck in this guy <laughs> to, 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 I hope you don't, I hope you don't have a curse on you now that I sent this to you. Um, I don't think this is an official, but I thought it was, a, I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was interesting. I actually had it shipped to me beforehand. So I got a little look at it first. And I was like, oh, my Lord, this is not what I was expecting. But still, I decided yeah, to. You had mentioned there was not a picture of this actual item on the eBay listing. So, uh, you know, I guess eBay is like a box of chocolate sometimes. It is. You never is. know what you're going to get. I think it's pretty cool. I it like cool. it. So it's made out of wood and he's wearing yellow wrestling tights. And then his hair looks like someone took some cotton or something and maybe, you know, <laughs> added some dye to it yeah. and then glued it on the head. So I, I yeah, no, I, I like this. Uh, the DIY stuff. Uh, yeah. the, uh, unofficial. It's this is like the, the Jack Pfeffer version of wrestling <laughs> figures where you have Bunny Rogers <laughs> and, exactly. and whatnot. Uh, so, but yeah, this is a, this was a, a little different and it took me some, a little work to figure out that it was not Dr. D. David Schultz. Of course, I'll post a picture of the item oh, yeah, on yeah, Twitter. Yeah. So be sure Absolutely. to follow me at Al Gets Wrestling. Now, Heart of America, AKA Central States, and I'll probably use both names, uh, uh, interchangeably throughout the podcast, but they are one in the same territory. In 1971, 
the lead heel was Harley Race. And I believe this was probably the first year that he was the top guy in this territory. He wins huh. the Central States heavyweight title at the very beginning of the year. He had held it once before, but it was a very short couple of month long reign in either 69 or 70. And here he holds it for uh, the first several months of the year, loses it for a couple months, gains it back and holds it into 1972. So this is the year that Harley Race became a star in this territory. I think this was coming off uh, a, a big run he had in Amarillo as mm. Mad Dog Race sort of set the table for him to be the top dog here. But I, I did mention he did lose the title at one point during the year. Danny Little Bear won the title from Harley over the summer, held it uh, for a few weeks, not a couple of months, but it was just a few weeks. But interestingly enough, in my research, this title change had not previously been documented in any of the major title history sources. That includes uh, the, the famous uh, title histories book from 1991 that included WrestlingData.com and the great hisses site Wrestling-Titles.com. Um, huh. But here, the results from Kansas City uh, in what was billed as a title match, Danny wins the third fall cleanly. And there are several ads for title defenses outside of Kansas City and St. Joseph and some of these smaller towns where the match is Little Bear versus Bob Orton or Rock Hunter or somebody other than Harley. So hmm. in these cases, it's proof that Little Bear was billed as champion for at least some point. And then a few weeks later, he loses it back to Harley in Kansas City. Wow. So, yeah, so uh, our history podcast makes history and discovers yeah, history so cool. and I actually shared this information with uh, my pal, Chris Knights, uh, who's an editor for WrestlingData.com. I also forwarded it to the great Hizza, and both of them have updated their site to now have more complete and accurate records. And they've both been really good about because particularly I'm sure they get lots of, you know, people sending things. You know, I, I always say, you know, there were two ultimate warriors, but those types of things. <laughs> so I, I try and always, you know. Back up my work. And I think at this point with both of them, they know me well enough to know I'm not going to say I, you know, this was a title change unless it's quite yeah, clear yeah. and I've got the evidence to back it up. So, yeah. you know, one of the things I'll say about wrestling data, I refer to it probably every day at some point I'm on that oh, yeah. site. I always say it's less complete and less accurate than a lot of people think, but I should also add that they are working to improve that regularly. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things we'll talk about later when we get to attendance figures is that it's important not only to know your source, but to know your source's source. And in the case of wrestling data, there are multiple secondary sources for all the info on their site. It was culled from, you know, various people pulling things from various places and sites and sources, all of whom have different levels of vetting and, and knowledge and their sources may have had the same. So once they got all that stuff in there, now there are people who are, you know, experts on certain time periods or certain places who are now drilling down, you know, more specifically to their wheelhouse, shall we say, and making sure what's in there is as accurate and as complete as possible. So, John, what's your, what was, do you have any knowledge? I know we've talked about the Valentine Backlund title held up, but do you have any knowledge of, you discovering a title change that 
no one else seemed to have huh. known of? A title change? Or I don't think not, so. Maybe, maybe no. not a title change, but anything else, wrestling-wise. Um, I, I, I found, I definitely found uh, just cards and, and results, right. uh, but just single, you know, individual cards, nothing, nothing of, you know, great historical, you know, yeah. importance, but t- just, uh, just from, just from cataloging programs, just from going through and be like, oh, this, I don't see that this is a thing that seems to have existed. Right. Just to see how many shows there were. I mean, we all understand wrestlers worked most every day. That's not always the case. There are some territories where they had Sundays off. There are some territories where guys have built in days off every now and then. But for the most part, these guys, you know, in the 20 to 25 territories active in the U.S. and Canada, they each have a crew of anywhere between 12 and 35 guys, all of whom are wrestling, you know, five to seven nights a week. That's, you know, probably millions uh, of matches if it, and hundreds of thousands, if not seven figures worth of wrestling shows that have been held. And we, as many as we do have so far, we're still scratching the surface. So the never ending quest of wrestling historians to uh, get all this info. We also on the site, we talk about some of the top feuds in the territory in 1971 and some of the top stars. If we look at the, rankings that I put together, which are based on how long each wrestler or team is in the territory and what their uh, week-to-week spot rating is. Uh, As I mentioned, Harley Race was the top dog. He was number one. Number two was Danny Little Bear. Number three was Rufus R. Jones. Number four was the team of Chad Yakuchi and Yasu Fuji. Fifth was the stomper, Archie Gouldie. Sixth, the team of Rock Hunter and Roger Kirby. Seventh, Roger Kirby by himself. Eighth, the team of Bob Orton and Buddy Austin. And this, of course, is Bob Orton Sr., as I think his son debuted in 72 or maybe even 73. Uh, Number nine is Bob Geigel. And the number 10 act in Heart of America in 1971 was the team of Baron Von Heisinger and John Tolis. So right off the bat, we see in the rankings there are seven singles acts and three tag teams all three tag teams are heel teams and we've mentioned before in the podcast that typically in this era the heel in the tag team division there's no such thing as a division but in the tag team ranks the heel teams are established cohesive units the assassins the midnight express what have you and much of the time they are feuding with makeshift babyface tandems. It's a top babyface like a little bear or a Rufus teaming up with several different partners until he finds the one that clicks and they're able to beat the heels. But here, aside from Yakuchi and Fuji, the other two tag teams, Orton and Austin, actually, I'm sorry, and I said three tag teams, there's a total of four tag teams. The other three tag teams, Rock Hunter and Roger Kirby, Orton Sr. and Buddy Austin and Von Heisinger and Tolis are all makeshift tag teams that were put together to be a regular act here. So they're not a tag team elsewhere. Uh, Certainly Von Heisinger and Tolis, I don't think were, nor were Hunter and Kirby. But here they're put together as the regular heel tag team and are feuding with various babyface combos. Although, like most territories of this time, the top feuds are mostly 
singles feuds, and mostly involving Harley Race. As a matter of fact, the four biggest feuds, as measured by our FLW stat, and five of the top eight are all involving Harley Race. So it's his feud with Danny Littlebear, his feud with Rufus, his feud with the Stomper, his feud with Pat O'Connor, and his feud with Bob Geigel. So it's it's definitely Harley mania <laughs> in this yeah, territory in 1971. And that means Harley had to drive to a lot of places because he's in uh-huh. against everybody. And we all know what a wonderful driver Harley Race was, John. Yeah, he's, the only thing he did uh, he, was, he was better at than uh, driving was boating. Yeah. <laughs> I still, I love the story of him having been a happy Humphreys driver when he oh. was first starting out when Humphrey was uh, a big deal. Humphrey was 700 plus pounds, gigantic, oh. and and Harley had to drive him around. I can only imagine what kind of wear and tear. Maybe that's why he got into so many accidents later on <laughs> was because his car had been wrecked by Happy Humphrey. Yeah, the, the alignment's all messed up. You know, yeah. Maybe he just got you know, PTSD from... The smell, or I don't, who knows, or just I don't know the the other Happy Humphrey activities he was tasked with allegedly. <laughs> yes, uh, you had to bathe him uh, in a very uh, interesting way. Although there really was no other way to do it. So yeah, yeah uh, we also on the site there are profiles written by David Gibb. Uh, David this month looks at Danny Little Bear and also the team of Chatty Akuchi and Yasu Fuji. Be sure to check those out. We talk about, he talks about their background leading up to 1971, and then it focuses on their time here in 71. Uh, Little Bear has a big run. As we mentioned, he wins the heavyweight title from Harley. Uh, Yakuchi and Fuji come in in the fall towards the end of the year and pretty quickly win the tag team titles, get into a feud with a makeshift team of the Stomper and the Viking. Uh, stopper Archie Gouldy and the Viking was Bob Morse, which sounds like a wild team. Viking was a big guy doing a Norseman gimmick, and the Stopper was, of course, the Stopper. So to picture the two of them as baby faces feuding with the heel Japanese wrestlers, uh, that sounds like a wild series of yes. matches. Yes, the uh, <laughs> I was very. I had no idea that Danny Little Bear's real name was Archie Underwood. <laughs> Archie Underwood, however, he was a yeah, legitimate Native American. That makes sense. So I, yeah, I, John, I live here in Atlanta, and uh, a couple weeks ago I went to a Braves game, and before the the uh, game started, they had a ceremony. There's a local uh, Native American tribe that the the Braves have always been very tight with. I basically feel that they are they give them money for the tribe to say that no we don't find the use of the name or the tomahawk chop offensive. Okay. I believe it's that sort of uh you know yeah. you scratch my back I'll scratch yours deal. So they yeah. were introducing some of the luminaries from the tribe and one of them's name was Alan. And I just started <laughs> laughing like okay, you know, yes, he's he's you know, the, the he's the, the high chief of a native american tribe but his name is Alan. <laughs> Something quite doesn't seem quite right to me. Uh, well, you know, my my take. So I I do not partake in the chop. I stopped doing it about two years ago. But at the same time, I'm not going to look differently on anyone else that that chooses to do it at this point. Uh, you know, I see both sides of it. I personally not going to do it anymore. But if the people next to me are doing it, I don't you know give them dirty looks or accidentally spill anything on them. Or anything like that. <laughs> do they still do the chant? 
Uh, not as much, but yes, okay. uh, with, with the chop comes the chant. They used to uh, play audio of, of the chant along with it for the crowd to chant along with. I think that stopped. They still do the drum beats, you know, to, okay. to time everything. I don't think they do the, uh, the chant over the PA system anymore. Gotcha. So we talked about a Japanese heel tag team. We talked about a Native American named Archie. Uh, now let's talk about a wrestler from uh, the, a small town in South Carolina who went on to uh, travel the world and, and achieve great fame in the wrestling business. And I, I got to tell you, if you think the uh, people get on the junkyard dog about whether or not he's a good wrestler, I would imagine the uh, the discussions about this man are even more polarizing because we're going to talk about Rufus R. Jones. Yeah, I, I, I've got before we even go to get into Rufus R. Jones, I, I just off the bat, since you since you since you mentioned that, how much of that do you think is because of Ric Flair? Uh, I think a good bit of it comes from Blair. Just like I think a good bit of the JYD stuff comes from Meltzer, even if, as he claims, he meant it as a joke when he referred to him as junk food mm. dog. Yeah. The fact that he constantly always did it, I think it led later fans to form an opinion of him. And I think the same goes here. I, I, um, uh, You know, look, Rufus was not a technical wrestler but oh. the guy was over the guy could draw yeah. uh yeah. there there was a he drew a, a really nice crowd for a world title match in st louis against dory funk jr so uh, to me it's the same it's the difference between a box office star and a great actor i think i would love to see vin great diesel analogy. in any fast and the furious movie I have no desire to see Vin Diesel doing summer stock Shakespeare in, in New Hampshire, <laughs> except in some sort of perverse, ironic kind of way. Yeah. And the example I always use is the first Thor movie. So you know who directed the first Thor movie? I a noted know. director who's also a, a, a Shakespearean classically trained actor, Kenneth Branagh. Okay. He was oh. smart enough to realize that, yes, he could direct Thor, but as good an actor and as acclaimed an actor as he was... He couldn't star in it, so he got Hemsworth to yeah, do it. Yeah. Uh, so that's the thing to me. We talk about great wrestlers, and people are talking about work rate in the same way they're talking about good actors. And there are people that are not good actors that their name at the box office means money. And I think the same could be said in the early 70s in Kansas and Missouri for Rufus R. Jones. Excellent, excellent, excellent analogy. Um yeah, back to back to let's go to from from Kansas to South Carolina. Actually, yes. here he's uh, born. He was born uh, birth name Carrie Lloyd in Clio, South Carolina. A very 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 small town. One of those towns on the old census forums when you see those there. Uh, you know, because they only have a population of something in the neighborhood of eight hundred people, they don't even list a town. <laughs> it's just you get the county, school district, and for town you get the letter R. For rural, that's it. Um, his, his birthday is listed as usually listed as July fourth, thirty three in the May nineteen forty census. He's listed as six years old, so that that tracks some of the later paperwork I've seen for him. It lists his birth date as his, his age as estimated. 
<laughs> so I was sort of suspicious, like at some point, like maybe he didn't know his actual birthday and he just, well, I know it's in the summer. Maybe we'll just go with July 4th because it's like, I don't know how, at what point. You know, do you, or do you start guessing what your birthday is? And this would also know. give him a very late start into pro wrestling. He's already well into his thirties. Oh yes, I believe. Yep. So yep. if if the thirty three figure is is accurate, yes. Um, his family sharecroppers, as was the majority of the population of, of Clio, South Carolina, at this time. If you look at like the occupation column on these census records, you see maybe one carpenter per dozen families. Maybe maybe a logger here or there. Everybody else is farmers. 60 hours of work a week, zero pay, all sharecroppers. Um, and Rufus was a kid. They moved Dillon County, uh, just about 15, 20 miles southeast Clio. At, at the time, Dillon County, Dillon County was roughly, roughly the same size. In the current, currently, Dillon County's right off I-95, uh, but 95 didn't open uh, in South Carolina until the late 60s, 1968, I believe. And actually the first section that opened was in Dillon. Um, so yeah, his family moves into a tenant house in the Little Rock section of Dillon County. A tenant house in this context is sort of be like a building that would house the sharecroppers on the same land as the farm to which they were tending. Um, South Carolina, 1940s. This is probably cotton, tobacco, corn, so on and so forth. Um, later on, Rufus would work also as a logger. I would imagine his size, the big kid, also had something to do with him getting into that line of work. Uh, eventually, his relatives, most of them, leave the South, move up to the Northeast, settling in New York, New Jersey. Um, and this is very common during those years, um, the, the, the part of the, the Great mi Migration, as right. it was called. Um, it was like something like, like six million you know, black families relocated to the north. Uh, the reason's pretty obvious. Segregation, for one. You know, I was trying to find, I thought it'd be fun to find some high school year, yearbook photos of young Rufus, but the only yearbooks I found in those counties are all white schools. Um, also in the South, they had these laws that were referred to as the Black Codes, that even though the black population was quote-unquote free, the, the white population, for the most part, landowners here, still controlled the labor force with a system that was very, very similar to the one that existed during slavery. Like in, in South Carolina specifically, where Rufus's family is from, they had a law where a black person was prohibited from having a job as anything other than working on a farm or as a servant unless they paid a tax that could be anywhere from $10 to $100, wow. which in 1940 money, that's like $2,000. You know, um, so you could see where there would be desire for the Lloyd family, as well as the six, you know, million other people to try to find a better life elsewhere. Um, Rufus, I think, played one year of football in college that would later be known as South Carolina State, uh, historically black university. I think when Rufus was there, it was still called like the industrial mechanicals and agricultural college of South Carolina or something long and convoluted like that. Um, but Rufus follows his family up there sometime in the early mid fifties. Uh, I figure 51, 52, he's probably still in college. Uh, the first record I found of uh, Rufus or Carrie Lloyd, rather, in, in, in New York City, was a January 1955 edition of the New York Daily News, 
where as a Golden Gloves boxer, his name is in the headlines in bold type, Lloyd wins in gloves thriller. Described as a rugged 200-pound boxer, a construction worker from the Parks Department, who kept the crowd of 1,400 howling at Sunnyside Garden in Queens, just just minutes from my apartment. Um, and yeah, in addition to the Parks... He ends up going like 32 wins and three losses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big deal. Um, he's also doing carpentry work, uh, working construction, high-rise buildings later on. Around this time, he starts hanging out with Marvin Nelson, Melvin Nelson, rather, better known by his unfortunate wrestling name as Burhead Jones. Uh, I think Nelson's wife was Rufus's second cousin, and they had previously lived close to each other in South Carolina, so they were buddies from way back. Um, and Nelson had a similar sort of life as Rufus working on the farm, moving to New York, uh, eventually finding work at like a vegetable packing plant and as an elevator operator at Stern's department store on 42nd Street. And Rufus being an athlete and Nelson being an elevator operator on 42nd Street, they take notice when the Mid-City Gym opens in 1962 on 42nd street so they start working out there and eventually end up meeting some wrestlers like they mentioned uh mark lewin don curtis uh john and chris tolos uh bobo brazil who apparently told rufus he was too big and clumsy to make it in the wrestling business um at this point rufus and nelson they both like wrestling but they weren't in the business or anything but eventually realize uh that this is something that they want to do and both end up breaking in the business a few years later. Yeah. So this is, uh, I guess the mid sixties or so I know early in his career, Rufus used the ring name of Buster Lloyd. And we've mm -hmm. talked about this previously on the podcast in 1969, he's working as Buster Lloyd as a heel in East Texas. And this was one of the earliest examples I've come across of a black wrestler working as a heel in the South. Of course, uh, it all depends on what, what you know what you quantify as the South and whether East Texas, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, San Antonio yeah. is the same as South Carolina, Mississippi, Louisiana, or different. But still, a very early uh, showing. Uh, and he was uh, he was doing a boxer type of gimmick. Uh, I believe he was billed from New York City. Um, he first went to Heart of America at the end of 1969, but only stayed for a month or so. He next went to West Texas for a few months, and there he was Rufus R. Jones, and he had a brother named Lightning R. Jones, who would be later known as Sonny King. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. So after a few months in West Texas, he goes back to Heart of America, and he spent much of the rest of his career there. He did go to other territories over the years. He had several notable runs for Crockett in the late 70s and early 80s, but I think he's most identified with Heart of America Central States. And of course, one of the problems with that is that there's not a whole lot of footage from mm. Heart of America in the early 70s. Now, there is St. Louis footage uh and rufus was uh, as we mentioned earlier was was used regularly by mushnick in st louis but john you put together uh some match recommendations well four matches and something else uh <laughs> recommendations on youtube uh and as always we're going to put these together on a playlist uh, on our youtube channel so be sure to search for charting the territories on youtube so john tell us a little bit about some of the matches you uh, included in your playlist for Rufus R. Jones. 
I've got two that I, I really think would be fun to talk about briefly. The, uh, the first one is, is Rufus and Abdullah the Butcher uh, taking on Terry Funk and Dick Slater in Japan in July of 1978. Uh, I love this match. Everyone in it is just fantastic and perfect. Crowd is super into it. I love some white pants. Abdul the Butcher. Terry Funk, of course, is never not great. Dick Slater is like a freaking dynamo in this match. He's all over the place. Yeah, this, is, really- some, this is some really good Slater stuff. Slater's one of those guys, uh, you know, he did everything so well. And really, you know, nowadays, I, I think John Moxley reminds me in so many ways of Dick Slater. And that's not a knock on Moxley at all. Uh, Dick obviously was not necessarily a super, super top top guy for most of his career, but it was a solid guy. He did everything well. He could be heel. He could be babyface. His his stuff was realistic. Uh, he's just, and he's really, really good here, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's really cool seeing Rufus work as a heel here, seeing how he just slightly tweaks his, his, his work, you know, his facial expressions are a little different, like kind of like more mean, you know, where he would normally just do like the punching and kicking when, you know, during a comeback or firing up. He that more or less becomes his entire offense. Um, I think everyone eventually gets busted open and bleeds all over the place, except Rufus in this match. Uh, <laughs> Terry Funk pins Rufus for the win, and there's a big brawl at the end. But the the VH old VHF tape gets really wonky, so you can't really see what's happening. But nonetheless, the first twenty minutes of this thirty minute video are really great. I, I don't think I've, I don't I don't think I've seen this match before. I don't you know, just never it's just never popped up for me, but it's yeah. a great little great little match. Um, it's a, it's a the good, other one. It's a good watch and I will say about Rufus, All Japan must have liked Rufus because he did tours for All Japan in 7 out of 11 years between 1972 yeah. and 1982. Yeah. So uh, a lot of times guys will be brought in for one tour and never come back or one other time and that's it, but but clearly they were happy with Rufus, which again tells you a little bit that it doesn't matter if they can you know do flips or all these great you know hot moves or whatever you want to call it if they're over they're they're gonna get work speaking of over yeah um i know what's now now you're probably now i can hear i can hear i can hear the eyes rolling back the eyes rolling in everybody's head when I when I mentioned this match, Rufus R. Jones versus Ernie Ladd, March seventeenth, nineteen eighty four, Boogie Jam, Jam. eighty four, baby, Greensboro, North Carolina. But man, oh man, Go, this sort of goes back to what we were talking about when we first started talking about Rufus. Um, and I apologize if I repeat your sentiments exactly in some of what I'm going to say here. Um, you know, it's hard to pick out a, a single match and say like this is what pro wrestling is all about because wrestling is so many things. There are many different types of wrestlers, many different types of matches, and promotions, personal tastes, et cetera, et cetera. But you can, I can look at this match. I think it's the second match on this super card, Boogie Jam, and find as much like overall value and importance in it, and like it as much as I do the Steamboat versus Flair sixty-minute draw in the semi-main event. Very two different matches, but they're both perfect at doing exactly what they need to do. Like, of course, Flair Steamboat's going to have the technically superior wrestling. But man, listen to the crowd here. Like, Lad gets some booze, but the pop that Rufus gets when he's just coming to the ring and the one he gets right at when he gets introduced. And this is like raw footage, no commentary. So this crowd is freaking loud, yeah. super, super loud. They go 
absolutely nuts. If you have any doubt about how popular he was in the Carolinas, just just you don't even need to watch this. Just listen to it. Yeah, you could you just uh, yeah, you could watch with your eyes closed uh, and you get a feel for how the fans felt about with and this is in 84. So uh, 84. according according to what we what we believe his birth date to have been, he would have been 51 years old. Combined age of like guys are like what is it, 96 between yeah. these two guys? They, you know. And they've got the crowd in the palm of their in the palm of their so perfect. They and these two had probably wrestled each other dozens of times going back all the way to 1969 for the punks. Right. They feuded for Crockett a ton in early 84. So they knew exactly what to do. They got this thing down. Rufus knows when to sell, when to make his comebacks. Ernie knows when to cut him off, when to gloat. He knows how to when and how to sell for Rufus. Six minutes, a tenth of the time of the Flair Steamboat match, but just as perfect of an example, in my humble opinion, as pro wrestling done right. Lad knows when to grimace and grab his head. and Rufus knows exactly when to fire up. And like we said earlier, whatever shortcomings these guys have in the ring because of age, injuries, or just their ability, what other qualities they have that they're displaying here, whether you want to call it charisma, ring presence, or working. Like, this is actually working, like being able to do this. Um, whatever you want to call it, that more than makes up for that. And these are things that these guys can do just as well, probably even better in 1984 than they did in 1969. And it's just, it's just a great, great, ah, such a great match. It's like six minutes. Please watch this match because it's just, it's just, this is, a, this is over. You know, this is like, Great. Yeah. And then there's two other matches that are part of the playlist. Uh, John, quickly, what are those two? Uh, we got Rufus versus Ron Fuller, Memphis 74. I just wanted to get some old Rufus in there to see what old Rufus was yeah. like. Um, got a, oh, St. Louis. We talked about Rufus and Carrie Von Eric versus Bobby Jaggers and Jay Day Dillon. Just a, a fun assortment of guys. <laughs> And, and there's match. a fun little TV match as well. And uh, listeners, if, if you think Rufus was not a very good wrestler, just wait until you hear him sing. Because the other <laughs> video or the other YouTube uh, footage that we, we have as part of the playlist is the B-side from Rufus's and not Rufus and Chaka Khan, but Rufus R. Jones, yeah. 1974 single, the B-side called That's Not The Way. And let me yeah. tell you, it's definitely not the way. Yeah, Rufus, Rufus sounds like he's telling an ambulance driver that's not the way to the hospital when he's singing. Jesus. It's um, it's rough. Um, music, but, music is good. Music is eh, good. It's all right. <laughs> if you like obscure 70s soul funk like there's no numero group eccentric soul compilations you might you might like otherwise no i see you standing by the window with tears in your eyes If he told you a lie To win your love That's why I want Some of the articles John mentioned earlier, I'll post those on Twitter. Also post links to an article about the life and career of Rufus by Mike Mooneyham from South Carolina. So of course, Mike, uh, that's dear, near and dear to, to him. Uh, one of the interesting things I 
learned from this article was uh, that in 1991, literally the the same year Rufus passed away. Rufus passed away towards the end of the year, but earlier in 1991, he opened up a restaurant in Kansas City, and many of his contemporaries would come visit the restaurant once a month to have lunch and, and, and meet up and catch up. And the group included Bob Geigel, Bob Brown, Mike George, Benny Ramirez, and Sapphire. Yeah. So that's, that's a nice little group. And of course, we talked about Benny a couple of months ago yeah, on the yeah. podcast. This was in 91. So this was uh, before Benny's untimely passing. And of course, yeah. Rufus passed uh, later that year. There's also um, a really nice bio in the uh, Heroes and Icons book by Greg Oliver oh, and Stephen Johnson. Great, great little bio. Um, as a matter of fact, a lot of the stuff in this bio is also in Mike Mooneyham's article. But if you do have the chance to pick up Heroes and Icons, please do. Um, mm-hmm. One of the interesting things I, I picked up from this was a story uh, about Rufus and Wahoo McDaniel were sitting <laughs> in, at a show in Florence, South Carolina. And Wahoo... <laughs> was bragging about how big a, a house he drew, um, you know, and this and that. And, and Rufus uh, grabbed the promoter uh, and took him outside into the, you know, to the crowd and, and asked him, do you see any Indians out here? They were all, they're all black. All the fans, you know, most of the fans are in Florence, South Carolina. And, and that yeah, day yeah. were black. So uh, clearly, <laughs> I don't think Wahoo drew as many fans as he thought he did. And perhaps Rufus was responsible for that. But, you know, again, this is just one of the disconnects that that exists between fans of the current form of professional wrestling and fans of uh, the early, you know, who grew up in the early 70s. This wasn't about putting on a good, you know, having good matches, telling stories, you know, doing it. This was about you know, a visceral reaction to a favorite wrestler of yours looking to get revenge, win the title, beat a guy, win some money, what have you. And especially Rufus, his interviews, uh, you know, his diction is horrible. He's, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, but, but that's part of the appeal because particularly in mid Atlantic, you know, so many of these fans are, you know, on the below average end of the income spectrum. And, and, when you hear about Rufus's background for him, wrestling was legitimately a way out. Mm. Oh yeah. And to many of these fans in the early seventies, that's what they saw in, in Rufus, you know, the, the, a phrase that gets tossed around a lot nowadays is the phrase representation matters. And it's mostly about the portrayal uh, of blacks and, and other minorities in the media with the idea being a young kid or a young adult sitting at home watching, you know, seeing this, you know, they say, wow, I could, I could be that. And I think this resonated with a lot of the fans in the lower income, you know, areas that mid Atlantic and heart of America ran is, you know, this is, you know, I, I could, I could, I could get out too. There. Yeah. And there's a photo. I think, I think there's a, I think this photo that I'm thinking of is actually in Greg Oliver, Stephen Johnson's, uh, heroes and icons book in the in the uh, in the Rufus section. There's a photo of him that I love. Um, and it's like he's got the Central States belt over his shoulder, and he's got his hands at his at his side with his with his you know his palms facing forward. He almost looks like like a religious figure. Like it looks like it should be in like a stained glass you know 
window in like you know the the basilica of saint rufus it's looks it's beautiful and it's like this is like you could just you just you, you just feel that looking at that photo you could just see how you can draw people in just such yeah. a such a personality one of the top stars of the Heart of America Wrestling Territory in 1971. And we've run through most of the top stars, but it's, of course, always fun to look at the entire roster as well. And on our website on A Year in the Life, we do have the the full roster of regulars in the territory in 1971, broken down by categories based on their spot rating, which is our measure of their average position on the cards. And and actually, uh, based on spot rating, Rufus comes in as an upper mid-carder. His spot rating is a .77. Remember, spot goes from zero to one, and any wrestler with a .80 or above is a main eventer. Uh, here, the main eventers were Harley Race and Roger Kirby on the heel side, the Stomper and Danny Little Bear on the babyface side, and uh, Chatty Yacucci just barely makes the cut. His spot is a .80, while his partner, Yasu Fuji, came in as a .79. Ooh. Um, Rufus is right below him at .77. Then you have Bob Geigel, and then you have several heels. You have Buddy Austin, John Tolis, Bob Orton, Rock Hunter, and Baron Von Heisinger. Now, in the case of Tolis, he's only here for a few months, and they don't really do a whole lot with him. He doesn't get a, a big push, and he certainly doesn't get a push commensurate with where he'd been slotted in other territories. And yeah. this is almost certainly because they knew going in that he was only going to be here for a few months. Uh, hmm. Here he was sent—he he, he left Southern California— with the idea being they wanted to get him out of the minds of fans to then bring him back a few months later. And remember, 1971 is the big, big, big angle with Tolis and Freddie Blassie. So I think this was a a predetermined thing where they knew he was going to be away for a few months. Therefore, the place he went to, they, they took care of him. They gave him a nice role, but they didn't really make big plans because they knew he was leaving. Yeah. Not too long after coming in. Now, further down the cards, we have uh, the mid-carders. And these are guys like the Viking, Steve Bolas, uh, the great Sakaguchi, George Holtz, Benny Ramirez, Bobby Whitlock, Terry Martin, who's one of the Cormieri brothers from uh, Canada. Uh-huh. And also a uh, a guy who came in at the very tail end of 71 that would become a, a big star in the territory for the next few years. And that was Omar Atlas. Uh, mm-hmm. We've talked in the past when we talked about Cyclone Negro that he and Omar were running buddies for a long time. Uh, so here, Omar is already a, an established veteran, but he comes in late in the year here and has a nice little run uh, for the next couple of years. Uh, there's also uh, some part-timers. These are guys that made occasional appearances in the territory. This includes guys who were in the territory but used on a part-time basis like Tony Russo or Frank Diamond, even Pat O'Connor. At this point in time, he's he's one of the owners of the territory, and he's scaled down his bookings, his in-ring schedule, and is working more behind the scenes. We also see a few guys coming in just for the summer, and that included Dick the Bruiser, Haystack Calhoun, Cowboy Bob Ellis, and Baron Von Raschke. And this is where this territory differed from many others in that in the summertime, they ran a reduced schedule. Hmm. And this is something I've seen in other places. And the one thing they have in common is 
geography because it all seems to be along a, I forget which is longitude and which is latitude, but along a horizontal plane in the U.S. where the climate was warm in the summer, but not warm enough. And what I what I think was going on was that the territories that ran in this area mostly ran smaller venues. And I think in the early 70s, the cost of air conditioning for a 3,000-seat venue was not worth it for only three or so months of use throughout the year because it was only warm uh, enough to need it for a few months. Gotcha. Okay. So for that reason, uh, St. Joseph, Missouri, which was promoted by Gus Karras and was a, a weekly town for decades, took off during the summer. Even the McGurk town of Joplin, Missouri, took off for the summer. The same thing happens with the WWA, Dick the Bruiser's territory, and the Dusix, uh, a little further north in Nebraska. So huh. I think I think the common theme here is where where they are, and I believe a lot of it has to do with uh, the building. So so they ran a reduced schedule and usually had a scaled down crew, and would bring in guys like Von Raschke and Dick the Bruiser, who, as I mentioned, were working for the WWA, who also had a reduced schedule in the summer. So maybe okay, between yeah. the and also a lot of the part timers here are being booked for the Dusix. Uh, occasionally. And of course, the wrestlers from this territory every few weeks, some of them would be booked for Mushnick in St. Louis. And and St. Louis in the early 70s also took off during the summers. So there's a common theme. But this also makes it difficult to exactly pinpoint how complete our records are. Because typically what I do, I look at the grand scheme of things for the full year and see how many bookings we have for the regulars, uh, which are usually the, the top heels in the territories. As we've mentioned in the past, a lot of times baby faces don't work. The top baby faces are also owners or bookers and thus don't wrestle six to seven nights a week. We mentioned O'Connor, uh, of course, Bill Watts, Eddie Graham, Vern Gagne. This is a common recurring theme. But if you look at the top heels and see how many records we have for them, that gives us a good idea of how complete our records are. But this territory is a little harder because of the schedule over the summer and because some of their guys are being booked out to the Dusix territory, which is very incomplete. Also, here it's not just one or two guys that are working that part-time schedule. It's O'Connor. It's Ronnie Etchison. It's um, even at this point in time, Geigel is working a reduced in-ring schedule compared to some of the other guys. But that being said, just because we don't have a full slate of bookings for Pat O'Connor, we can't rule out that we're missing these teeny tiny spot shows in the middle of nowhere where they take four four wrestlers and do two singles in a tag team match. And the whole draw is see the former world heavyweight champion at your local high school gym. Yeah, I don't think that's the case, but we just we just don't have enough information to rule it out. Another factor with this territory is the readily available uh, small troop of women wrestlers. And this is Betty Nicoli, Gene Antone and Kay Noble, Kay Noble, pardon me, are all based in, I think, St. Joseph. And also based in St. Joseph is Lord Littlebrook's uh, school and stable of little persons. 
Right. So again, anytime, you know, anytime this, you know, Geigel needs a couple of extra guys to fill out a card, he can call Littlebrook and he's, if he has a couple of little persons that aren't, you know, outside, you know, working somewhere else, it can just, you know, slap them on the card. That being said, for this territory, we do have what I believe to be complete records for all the shows held in the state of Kansas. This territory, the bounds of it are pretty much all of Kansas, a good chunk of Missouri, and a good chunk of Iowa. So given that we have what we believe to be complete records for Kansas, there can't be that many spot shows in just Missouri and Iowa, just because there's just not a whole lot of places to run. Yeah. But what's interesting is when I looked at the when I looked at the records for Kansas, which we have from the uh, State Athletic Commission, whose records are now held at the Kansas State Archives, and uh, which I've been to a few times over the years to visit and to do research, there are no fair shows in these records in the state of Kansas, and we know they ran fair shows in Iowa. We know they ran fair shows in Missouri. So the question is. Are a, is a fair show, which is typically a sold show and not one where you're selling tickets for the wrestling and need to pay taxes on it, were those not reported to the State Athletic Commission? My answer is possibly. However, given that these Athletic Commission records also include licensing info and in addition to just an after-show report, they need to apply for an application to run the show where they list all the wrestlers and their license numbers. So for that mm-hmm. reason, I would think if they're running mm. fair shows in Kansas, they still need to provide the Athletic Commission a list of the wrestlers that are booked and to make sure they have licenses. As a matter of fact, there is one fair show for Kansas later on in the 70s that it did find records for. So... Maybe the fair shows didn't have the same level of record keeping as the typical house shows, but I honestly, I'm not sure. So that's just one example of having a lot of information, but still not being able to be sure whether that information is complete and correct, which brings us to attendance figures. (laughs) <laughs> In fact, just recently, the last couple of weeks on Twitter, the uh, the topic of WrestleMania 3 has popped up again. It pops up every few months, but it's uh, more prevalent, especially as we get closer to All In at Wembley Stadium. I think now, you know, people are uh, revisiting the 93-173 number or whatever the real number was, which I think was stated as 77-178. So, John, let me ask you this. And First, this okay. isn't even in wrestling related. Just say you are promoting an event where you want, uh, you know, you want people to come either to pay money okay. or just to come hang out. Okay. What would be your motivation for overstating how many people showed up in, you know, when you're talking about the event with a newspaper after the fact? Um, I would my motivation uh, to attract more people to my 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 next event. Right. Right. You want people to think, okay, this is the place to be. This is the, this is a happening, you know, uh, it it was almost a sellout last time. I better, I better buy my tickets in advance next time. And also a little bit of ego probably comes into play. If you did, especially if it didn't do as well as you thought you might, you know, not want to admit that you're a complete and total failure. (laughs) So you, you fudge, you fudge the numbers a bit. Yeah. So now from a wrestling promoter standpoint, 
what is their motivation, if any, if in understating attendance? As a wrestling promoter, as far as like understating, the only stuff I could think of, of a couple, I guess, um, to avoid paying, uh, you know, the athletic commission their share, right, right. to avoid paying as much guys that get a percentage of the gate. Like if the touring champion comes through, you got to give him a cut of the gate. You got to give much Nick his part of the gate. Uh, if Andre comes through, does Vince senior gets a cut right. that sort of stuff is what I think again. So yeah, to avoid, to, yeah, to limit your expenses by saying it didn't do as well as we thought. Yes. Um, and you know, we, we generally understand that many promoters, I don't know, you know, if it's going to be most all half or whatever, but a good chunk of promoters skimmed a little off the top. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, we can, it's not ethically great, but this is, this is just how it was. And we can accept that. Um, so the question is looking at now that we have paperwork from several different state commissions, can we look at these and try and figure out how easy it was to skim off the top? I mentioned recently I was in Michigan and I found some records from the late 1950s from the Michigan athletic commission. And there the promoters had to, for every show, they had to print separate paper tickets. You couldn't just, you know, buy that big roll of, you know, tear off tickets at, at the general store or whatever yeah. and use them over and over. You had to have separate tickets printed for each show. And the printer had to send the commission a signed and notarized letter stating how many tickets were printed for each for each show. One, one signed notarized letter for every house show. Uh-huh. And I don't know this for a fact, but in theory, it wouldn't surprise me to learn that the promoter then had to return the uns, not return, but submit the unsold tickets to the commission. This makes it pretty hard to skim. The stuff I've seen in Tennessee, they have ticket numbers. Again, I'm thinking of a roll of tickets that you buy at the general store or nowadays Target or Walmart that you use over and over, which it's definitely skimmable. But it's not as easy, you know, well, let's face it, if, you know, if a wrestling promoter in Tennessee wanted to, you know, run to the box office and, you know, grab a 20, they're going to. But mm-hmm. to skim, it becomes a process. In Kansas, uh, the uh, the show reports just ask the number of tickets sold in each at each ticket price point. There's no numbering system or anything like that. So mm-hmm. if they wanted to skim, and I'm not saying they did. It was easier in Kansas than it was in Tennessee and much easier than it was in the late 50s in Michigan. Um, But what's interesting is we have these show reports that basically list the attendance and gate for every house show in Kansas. But we also, in some instances, also have an attendance figure given to the newspaper when they do the results of shows in Kansas City. And I do want to point out, when this territory ran Kansas City, they ran a building on the Kansas side. Remember, Kansas City is one of those cities that is on is in two states. It's on the border of Missouri and Kansas. Oh, yeah. And the larger p- part of it is in Missouri. But here, 
The building they typically ran was Memorial Hall in Kansas City, Kansas. A few times a year for big shows, they'd run a larger venue in Kansas City, Missouri. But because they ran Kansas City, Kansas, we have attendance figures for the weekly shows in in their main market, which is great. But when we also have a number given to the newspaper, those numbers are way different. And the numbers (laughs) in the newspaper are more, not just by 5 or 10%, but as much as 50%. Uh, just to give some examples, on April 8th, they reported a crowd of 2,955 to the Athletic Commission, but the newspaper said it was a sellout crowd of nearly 4,000. On October 21st, 1,922 reported to the commission, but again, in the newspaper, a sellout crowd of 4,000. So that's double. Yeah. So here, it's also, as we, you know, it's important to understand the source of what's in the newspaper. And in this case, it's clear that it was the promotion giving the number to the newspaper. This wasn't the local sports writer going to the show and counting heads or walking into the <laughs> ticket office and getting a count. These just going by what he was told. And especially since... We don't have a newspaper attendance figure every week. We typically only have it for the larger uh, crowds, the larger attendance shows. This is promotional exaggeration or bluster, much in the same way that they would say Andre the Giant was seven foot four, or that there was a $25,000 battle royal, or that such and such wrestler uh, had just came back from a tour of Zimbabwe where he won 100 matches in 50 days. These attendance figures in the newspaper, particularly when they're not on every show in the town, that's a hint that that number is less likely to be the real number. And Mm. in all likelihood, the number reported to the commission is closer to the real number minus any skim. And, And here's the thing that people need to understand. We will never know exactly how many people bought tickets to the April 8th show in Kansas City, Kansas. We know what was reported to the commission. We know what was announced in the newspaper. All we can do is use common sense and in some cases data to figure out which of these figures is most likely to be true and or most likely to be closest to the correct number. But in this case... The 29, you know, the attendance that report that they're reporting to the commission also has dollar figures attached to it. Thus, that's what they're paying taxes on. And taking that a step further, John, if a promotion announces a gate figure, a dollar figure in the newspaper, in your mind, does that change your thoughts on whether that may or may not be closest, you know, the real number? close to the real number. I would imagine they what they reported would they would want that to be lower. Well, but what I'm saying is if they're yeah, yes. Um but, but if they're if they're if they're putting a dollar figure out publicly and they're mm. in a commission state where they have to pay taxes or even if not a commission state, they still have to pay, you know, income they have to pay taxes on their profits and losses at the end of the year. Yeah. Aren't they in a way sort of tying themselves, forcing themselves to pay taxes on that number? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. for that, so because of that, it's less likely to be 
a grossly inflated false yes, number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So typically when promotions report attendance in the newspaper, they only give the attendance, not the gate. And that's why. Because if they put a dollar figure out there, they now have to pay taxes on that. Or at the very least, they risk getting themselves audited if they don't. Yeah. And very rare is the wrestling promoter willingly paying more taxes than they need to. <laughs> In fact, most of them pay a lot less. So that being said, we have attendance figures and we have gate figures. So those are two pieces of data. John, is there a third piece of data that we can get from those two figures? If you have attendance and you have gate, is yeah, there something you can do with those two numbers? Ticket price? Average ticket price. Like yes. That. You can come up with the average ticket price. And that can be useful in figuring out if the numbers are real or not. Because if you know the ticket prices that were advertised ahead of time for the show, you would expect the average ticket price to fall somewhere in the range. You know, if if, uh, if they're two fifty for general admission and $3 for ringside, the average ticket price for the show better be between those two numbers and should probably be closer to the middle of them. You know, if it's, if it's, you know, if it's on the very low end or on the very high end of that range, that's suspect. So if you find the ticket prices seem out of whack, that's another hint that something might be wrong and that these numbers might be bull hockey. Hmm. And yet another thing to consider is, again, the source's source. If the St. Louis newspaper printed an attendance figure, which was sent in by um, someone working on behalf of Sam Mushnick, who uh, mm -hmm. has always had very good ties with the local press in the area, do we think that number is more likely to be the correct number, John? I... I would, I would, I would find much Nick or assume him to be a little more on the level. Exactly. Than, than so most other promoters. Right. And so again, in a case like that, once we know the source's source and we know what using what we know about Sam Mushnick, we now can say that number is more likely to be the real number. So mm -hmm. here in this territory, aside from the stuff from the Kansas Athletic Commission, we also have weekly attendance figures for the cards in St. Joseph, Missouri. Oh, nice. And again, so the question is, are these real numbers or are these artificially inflated numbers? And again, we need to understand the source's source. These came from Gust Karras, who was a very well-respected figure in St. Joseph, Missouri, and not only promoted wrestling, but also did all the local boxing events. When the Globetrotters came to town, he handled them. He did mm -hmm. horse shows. He did baseball tournaments and so on and so forth. In this case, similar to Mushnick, I'm inclined to say it's more likely that these numbers are real. Another reason is because we have them for just about every show. And we said earlier, when you okay. only have them for a handful of shows in one town, that's a hint. Also here, they're to the exact number. It's attendance was 1,422, not about 1,500 or <laughs> giving actual numbers, but them always being perfectly round numbers. Yeah. So again, I can't prove that 
the St. Joseph attendance numbers are accurate, but based on what we know and where they came from, I'm more inclined to believe they are more likely the accurate numbers. And that's the thing about pro wrestling. Again, we don't know these things for a fact. And, and the reason we're talking about attendance this month and all and how to analyze and interpret it is because of what we're going to be talking about next month on this podcast. We're going to be talking about what is believed to be one of the largest attended shows of the year, 1971, in the U.S. and Canada. But now that we're armed with all this other information and ways of analyzing data, we will need to ask ourselves, how do we know that's the real number? But we'll find that out next month. It's, it's hard to get definitive answers to wrestling questions. Oh, but boy. hopefully, John, oh, you can oh, come up is, oh. with some definitive answers to this month's John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. John, we yes. have a first this month. What? We have a first. So I've I've mentioned there have been a couple of occasions. Um, so Gordon Soli's Championship Wrestling Trivia Game, each card has four questions. And I read all four to John. I've mentioned that on one or two occasions, the card I pulled at random, you know, from the stack of cards, I didn't like the questions or thought they were too hard or, or there was something weird about them. So mm. threw the whole card away and picked yeah. another one. Well, this month, one of the questions on the card I'm going with is bull hockey. Not only is it very <laughs> poorly worded, it's very hard to come up with an answer to the question, but the answer oh, is very, very wrong. So okay. this doesn't count, but I'm going to read the question. Which okay. wrestling legend wrestled his first match against the great Luthez? So that's a ridiculously open-ended question. Yeah. It's really hard. Um, and the answer Gordon Soli gave was Vern Gagne, which is wrong. Okay. Vern Gagne's earliest documented match was May 1949 against uh, Abe Kashi. Okay. And I've seen that in more than one source. His gotcha. earliest documented match versus Luthez was about a year and a half later, October 1950 in Houston. Interesting. So this question Gordon. is very wrong as such. We're not going to count it. It's interesting, though, about Vern talking about his first match with Fez was in Houston in October 1950. That was right around the time that Vern won a several week long tournament in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to crown a new NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion. Vern beat Sonny Myers in the finals and the title had been vacant since earlier in the year due to the injury suffered by Leroy McGurk that led to his uh, retiring from the ring and taking over 50% of the uh, office from Sam Avey. Huh. Interesting. But the three questions from this card I am going to ask. First, okay. Where was Rick Martell born and raised? Uh, 
Um, oh, God. I will just guess uh, Montreal. The answer on the card is Quebec, Canada. Montreal is in Quebec, so you are correct. Okay, thank you. Thank I you. Mean, thank you for giving Ma- me that one. Technically, I believe it was Quebec City, but the answer on the oh, card okay. says Quebec, Canada. Quebec, Quebec is a okay. province. Montreal gotcha. is a city in the same province as the answer. So I'll give you that one. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the gimme. Thank you. Question number two. Okay. What was the AWA's version of WrestleMania? Also remember, this game was uh, published in the, I think, 87 or so. 86, 87, 88, something like that. So the AWA's version of WrestleMania. Oh, I'm blanking on this one. Oh. There it, it was not Wrestle a Rock. song involved. Wrestle Rock? Is it Wrestle Rock? See, you, you said it's not Wrestle Rock. Always go with your what comes to your mind first. Russell, Wrestle Rock? Razor. Wrestle Rock. Re- Wrestle Rock is it. Cool. Yep. Cool, cool, cool. Question number three. This is a fill in the blank, even though it's labeled as a true false question. <laughs> Gordon Gordon was on one this on, on the day he put yeah, together Gordon's this card. In, let me tell into, you. Into his cups. Into his cups. Yeah. Fireman's blank. I'm going to go with Carrie. That is correct. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. This is a weird, oh, weird little card we got. This, this Yeah. <laughs> that was a weird one. Uh, but uh, you somehow you managed to get the answers to all the questions <sighs> in some form or another. <laughs> yes, in some form or another. Thank yes. You. Uh, so back to the heart of America. Uh, yes. Like the heart of rock and roll, but uh, in, you know, on a map <laughs> instead of in Huey Lewis's uh, mind. Uh, in addition to all the cool stuff we have in a year in the life at chartingtheterritories.com, we also have the territory fact sheet, which has some really cool data points. Um, also lists, you know, the top stars, the top feuds. Um, we list the number of title changes. We list the average size of the crew, which in this territory was 16.2. They typically ran two shows per night. The Thursday shows in Kansas City were often, but not always, an all-hands-on-deck show. The same goes for the Friday night cards in St. Joseph. Sometimes on Thursdays or Fridays, they would also run a small spot show, but some nights they wouldn't. Also on Fridays, sometimes Mushnick would book some of the guys, and sometimes he wouldn't. We also continue to see uh, that baby faces in this era won more often than the heels. We actually have match results broken down by heel face status. So you can see how often baby faces won matches, how often heels won matches, and how often they were draws. And we separate it by spot on the card. So you can see if it's different for the main events uh, versus the preliminary bouts. And here we're starting to see a pattern that baby faces in pretty much every territory except one win more often than heels. Now, that doesn't mean they are clean pins. Most of the time they're winning by DQ. And even if there's a pin, it may be due to shenanigans or if a, a babyface mm-hmm. wins because of foiled shenanigans or because foiled, of yeah. hoisted by your own petard shenanigans where the heel brings in a chair, the babyface wrestles it away and uses it to get the pin. So that's another thing is just because a match in this era was won by pinfall doesn't mean it was a clean win. In fact, I'd wager to say, especially if the heel won in a main event, 
It's not going to be clean in the way we think of. There's always going to be shenanigans involved. Always shenanigans. Yes, but you can see the whole territory fact sheet at chartingtheterritories.com. And as I mentioned earlier, next month, we're going to head west and go to Southern California, which is generally referred to as NWA Hollywood in 1971. And in particular, we're going to look at the Freddie Blassie, John Tolis match at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum that broke an attendance record in the state and a gate record for all the United States. Or did it? Oh. You know, here's the interesting thing. There's probably one human being alive today that might have firsthand knowledge of this. And maybe, just maybe, if all our listeners think about this and hope for it and wish for it, perhaps we'll be able to get that person on the record and huh. see if we can learn something. Because we wow. learn something each and every month, John. I know I, I do. And you do too. Yes, me too. As a matter of fact, uh, each of us, every month on the podcast, name one thing we learned during the month. And we have very cleverly named this segment, This Month (laughs) I Learned. So, John, what did you learn? Well, one of of the angles that we talked about uh, in the past here on the show is the old uh, wrestler debuts as a fan in the crowd angle. And I, 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 I always enjoy hearing about these, especially the ones from years and years ago that we never got to see. I mean, we get to hear second, third hand stories about them. Um, I know, I know we talked about Ivan Putsky, I think I'm sure there are others, but I can't remember them at the moment. Nonetheless, this month I learned of another wrestler who debuted as a, as a pro, as a fan out of the audience, and that wrestler is Sailor Art Thomas. Um, the story goes that Thomas met Buddy Rogers in Chicago, and Rogers, duly impressed with the physique of Art Thomas, reports back to Vincent J. McMahon about the semen he saw in Chicago. McMahon sends him to go train with Fred Atkins uh, for almost a year, I think. Uh, and McMahon also tells him to go get himself the uh, the old Navy sailor outfit. You know? uh, so eventually he shows up in the audience on the old WWWF TV out of Washington, D.C. or Bridgeport, Connecticut, wherever. And Ray Morgan, the announcer, comes up to him and is very impressed with his his muscles. And they have they have Thomas explain how he just got discharged from the Navy that day. And they have him take his shirt off and pose and flex. And then some accounts say that Steve Stanley came out started roughing him up while other accounts say that uh, later in the show, Steve Stanley was roughing up one of the baby faces during a match and Thomas ran into the ring to make the save. Either way, you've got the fan out of the crowd angle. It always, always gets over with me. So you're saying one of the agents went and told Vince senior about uh, a semen he ran into, you know, during his travels. Of course, not too long afterwards, Vince Jr. would get in a whole lot of trouble when his agents were reporting about telling him about the semen they encountered uh, oh, on the road. Oh, oh God. good God, yes. I set you up for that one really nicely. Um, but, but you know you know how Cornette loves stuff, putting people in the box, everybody in the box gets over. Yeah. I love putting a guy in the crowd. 
you know, yes. John from West Virginia. I love that stuff. So that was, yeah, that's but, what I learned. And of course, month. Sailor Art Thomas in some places was billed as Seaman, Seaman. Art Thomas, S-E-A-M-A-N. Uh, yeah. I, I remember when I was a, a teenager, I went to summer camp and uh, our counselor was also a musician and I had never heard the term before, but man, did I giggle my ass off when he told us that he was a pianist. Because yeah. just to show you that, you know, you, yeah. boys will be boys and men will be men. Yes. yes, 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 they will. All right. So John learned about semen. I learned about Pink Floyd. <laughs> oh. So I was doing some research on Memorial Hall, which I mentioned earlier was the venue that Heart of America ran in Kansas City. It's a small, it's a small venue. Uh, but on their Wikipedia page, it notes that Pink Floyd did a concert there in September 1972, playing Dark Side of the Moon in full. Wow. Now, John, you're a music buff. Yeah. <laughs> when was Dark Side of the Moon released? Oh, that's a stumper for me. Um, okay. I, I'm going to say after that. Correct. March, 19, March of 1973. Oh, okay. So I found it odd that even though Pink Floyd was a progressive rock band, so this is way before Pink Floyd had become, you know, stars. Pink Floyd, yeah. Uh, they were still this, you know, college, you know, low, you know, buzz type of band. But it turns out that from January 1972 through early 73, they played Dark Side of the Moon, an album that hadn't even been released yet, in full on tour. And this was all across the world. It started with a leg in uh, England, then came to the U.S. Then they went back overseas, uh, back to England. And at that point, they were still recording the album. They were performing these songs live, but they hadn't put them, you know, recorded the official versions of them yet. Huh. So it's, And especially a concept album like Dark Side of the Moon, it's so interesting to me that a band would play that in full like, it's one thing for a band to say, hey, here's a new song from our, our upcoming album. Mix yeah. in with all the hits. But this is yeah. an album that no one's ever heard and a weird album. Yep. So, and of course, I wonder what they did for songs like Money and Time, if they had the sound effects yeah. pre-recorded or if they came up with creative ways, if they brought in someone to sing The Great Gig in the Sky, because I believe the actual vocals for Great Gig in the Sky were improv towards the end of the recording process. So huh. this might it might have been a complete instrumental at this point in time. Interesting. We've got to find some bootlegs, man. Yeah, but that's not the coolest part of this story. I mentioned... They did two separate legs in the U.S. in 1972, playing Dark Side of the Moon in full. The first show on the first leg of the U.S. tour in 1972, where the very first playing of Dark Side of the Moon in the United States ever was at the Fort Homer Hesterly Armory in Tampa, Florida. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's cool that's pretty cool now of course florida the, the florida crew this was a friday night the florida crew was out of the area they had shows in west palm beach and tallahassee but maybe just maybe a 21 year old who had not yet made his professional wrestling debut he'd actually make it later that same month this was april of 1972 perhaps a 21 year old mike graham 
was among the first people in the world <laughs> and one of the very first people in the U.S. to ever hear Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Wow, that's cool. That's so cool. Yeah. So that's what I learned this month. And John learned a little something wow. about Art Thomas uh, doing a fan out of the crowd gimmick. For, uh, yours is way cooler. Yeah. For, for more neat, random info that John and I post to Twitter all the time, you can find me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. If you want to learn about Leroy McGurk's territory in the first half of the 1970s or the first six years of the 1970s, you can check out one or both of my books uh, at chartingtheterritories.com or available worldwide on Amazon. Or you can come see me in person in Waterloo, Iowa at the Tragos Thez Hall of Fame induction weekend, July 20th through the 23rd in Waterloo. Also, you can hear me um, get between the sheets with Chris Zellner and David Bixenspan, Ooh. the episode that was released just a few days before this episode of the podcast came out. Episode number 413, the second week of July, 2023, episode 413 of Between the Sheets, in which we talk about this week in 1988, featuring the Great American Bash from Baltimore, and a whole mm. lot more. So, John... fun. Yeah. I talked about Dark Side of the Moon... John, why don't you tell our <laughs> listeners a little bit about Dark Side of the Ring and your involvement? I think by by the time this episode airs, Adonis Adonis uh, will, be, will air Adonis. two days before, and then Abdul the Butcher, I think, is up next after that. So we've got we've got that to look forward to. If you like the episode, you know you can. I, I will take as many thank yous as you want. If you don't like it, I'm pulling my Jimmy Garvin card. Not my, not fault. my fault. Not my fault. Uh, but yeah, watch that if you, if that's that's your thing. Um, please follow me on Twitter at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R, regardless of whether you watch or like the show or not. Um, I'm also on a Patreon. If you're a Patreon of the uh, Booking the Territory podcast. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm on an episode of Patreon. If you're a Patreon, and you should be, because those guys have so many... Patreon shows, it's ridiculous. Uh, it's, it's well worth it. I, and we talked about the Junkyard Dog episode of Dark Side of the Ring there. And we talked for the episode about for about 15 minutes and ended up talking for three hours just about general Junkyard Dog, Mid-South, uh, Bill Watts stuff. And it was a, it was a blast. And it's it was like, yeah, I, it went by really fast. I could not believe we talked. I always see these podcasts that go like six hours. I'm like, how do these guys record a podcast for six <laughs> hours? How do they do it? But I just, I did three and I was like, oh, this went by really fast. So I, I, I understand it now. So. Yeah. So you can hear us on other podcasts. And of course, you can always hear us on yes. this podcast. The Charting the yes. Territories podcast comes out the second Thursday of every month. To be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. For Charting the Territories, this is Al Getz saying goodbye. John, uh, we are headed to California next month. California, here we come. Cal California, baby.